I'm Alex Mozet, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. First topic for today, let's start off with a little bit of China news. Rapid fire, we got a few things out of the second largest economy in the, in the world. DD's daily active users plunge 30%, the Financial Times reports, indicating the data probe has dealt a heavy blow. Also, what happens when the Chinese government bans your app from the App Store and um, disables your ability to sign up new customers? This all goes back to the horrific IPO from Didi over the summer, right going into the July 4th holiday weekend. The Chinese government says that they told Didi not to IPO. Didi did it anyway. Even if Didi has a different story, it doesn't matter because... In the world of monopoly, there's no bigger monopoly in China than the CCP. And boy, have they made that clear. Um, This this IPO has been a disaster and a really uh, good wake-up call for U.S. and global investors um, thinking twice, finally, about investing in China. Next topic, China mogul loses $27 billion in world's biggest wealth drop. This is not related to Didi. This is Pinduoduo. It's a group kind of purchasing e-commerce platform. So, you know, in like rural China, you have these towns and villages and they would bundle together a bunch of orders to do group purchasing and then get better prices and discounts. And it streamlines the logistics. You know, you're going into these villages that are harder to get to. Um and so that was kind of the, the key unlock for PDD, which was the ticker there. Huang owns 28% of PDD, founded it in 2015, might I add. They had 788 million active users in December. Wow. I mean, it's just insane. Six years, uh, five years, exceeding the number of active users on Alibaba's marketplaces. And the reason for the drop was just this continued uh, CCP big tech crackdown that's been going on now for almost a year, starting really with Jack Ma's speech um, leading up to the Ant Financial IPO, which was then canceled. And now they're splitting apart kind of Ant Financial um, limb by limb. Wong, who's now only worth about $35 billion, he quit his role as CEO last year and stepped down as chairman this March. The CCP is making it very clear who is in charge. Article here, Twitter seeds Taiwan to China. Search results on Twitter, you know, when you search for Taiwan, the, the results are bringing you to posts saying that Taiwan is part of China. China must and will be reunified. Twitter redirects some of the searches for the word Taiwan to results for the word China. It's just another example of basically all of big tech, whether Chinese big tech or U.S. big tech, bending the knee to the CCP. Um, Chinese big tech having stark uh, and very clear backlash if they don't bend the knee. U.S. big tech, just ironically, which which is banned for the most part from even operating in China, but China um, has done a great job of exerting its soft power abroad. We've cataloged that in many ways on the show. Not only has Twitter bent the knee, uh, This is my iPhone. No longer says designed in California. Yep, that's gone. 
it's just a very sad display of um, subservience to the CCP for for what reason? You know, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. These algorithms, as we've seen, content moderation, content censorship at all time highs with big tech stuff is not a coincidence. Okay, YC sheds its ivory tower. What do I mean by that? What is Y Combinator? Y Combinator is is easily the best um, kind of incubator accelerator for tech startups. We actually have multiple team members and employees who have come out of Y Combinator. They're very good at what they do. They've, I mean, the the uh, laundry list of companies that have come out of Y Combinator: Airbnb, Dropbox. DoorDash, Caviar uh, was was one of our team members, co-founder of Caviar, went through Y Combinator. The list goes on and on and on. They have a relatively new CEO named Michael Siebel. He's also a, a YC alum. He was a co-founder at Twitch. Twitch was acquired by Amazon for roughly a billion dollars. If you go back to the early days of Y Combinator, basically the deal was they give you $150,000 they get 7% equity, they get uh, you know, follow-on investment rights. They introduced basically what has become now the de facto uh, uh, mechanism for convertible notes in Silicon Valley called a safe agreement, which gives a lot of power to founders and not so much power to investors. And so what you found traditionally is that you go through this roughly three-month program with YC you get a bunch of these alums, you get like, you get the co-founders of Airbnb and a lot of the successful YC companies, right? The founders come back, they talk to the, to the batches, right? So you have batches by season. Like we just had the summer batch, which I'm going to cover in a second, right? You have a winter batch, et cetera. You go through a course, they coach you up, they help you nurture your startup. These are very, these are seed stage, um, very early stage Startups, right? 150, where $150,000 is really the first money they've gotten. $150,000 makes a big difference for them, right? So very, very early stage businesses. Back in the old days of YC, and you can go on their site and you can actually see on their startup directory here, you can go all the way back summer of 05. Um, there were eight companies in North America. Reddit being one of them. So look at these numbers of just the increasing number of startups that, you know, in, in five years, five years later, the summer of 2010 class had um, 32 companies in North America. Another five years, uh, 87. Another five years, 144. And now, summer of 21, it's actually 213 in North America. The whole batch is actually 374 in 15, 16 years. And even just in the past couple of years, you've seen a very stark increase in uh, both the total number of startups in the batches as well as the percentage increase, right? So from summer 2020 to summer 21, you had roughly a 50% increase, right? In just one year. And that almost exactly coincides with 
Michael Siebel's ascension to running, where you had some increases, right, for the roughly 11 years prior to that, but um, certainly nowhere as a two and a half, almost 3x increase, right? So is that the way to go? Is more better? Is bigger better? Well, there's a couple side effects of that. One, $150,000 checks to now 200 plus companies instead of 87, very different. So what did YC do last summer? In the midst of COVID and all the stuff that's happening with COVID, they decreased the amount of money um, instead of 150000 it was now 125000 They still got their 7% stake. So that didn't go down. But basically, they were saying, well, your valuation is going to go up. Pat you on the back, founder. But we're going to give you less money, but we want the same amount of equity. Uh, there was some Twitter, uh, you know, some, some heated conversations on Twitter. These threads have now been taken down. This was summer of 2020. There was complaints that YC had, quote, lost its soul, you know, doing this right after COVID, uh, reducing the, the, you know, reducing the check size and, and taking in more startups. You have uh, Michael Siebel here. I don't think that our goal should be to build another ivory tower, he says. He went to Yale, by the way. We have to make sure the experience is extremely high quality, that founders get a lot of value and raise money. But as long as we hit those bars, I'm hoping YC resembles a large and successful state university system, as opposed to an Ivy League network. Very interesting comparison to draw. Don't think that I... I will say, I don't think it's the best analogy. I just think the scale is, is pretty off. If he, was, if he was thinking, maybe that's what he was thinking when he took over in 2016. You know, they were doing, I mean, look, it was actually the same number. Summer 15, summer 16, 87 North American companies. Summer 14, 71, summer 13, 46, summer 12, 70. So you're kind of oscillating around that number, up a little, down a little. But maybe he thought that those are Ivy League numbers. You know, those are, those are rookie numbers, I guess, uh, to Siebel. And instead, he wants to pump those numbers up. He wants Matthew McConaughey type numbers. Uh, and now we're in the hundreds, not just the triple digits, low hundreds. We're in the 200s in one batch, not even annually. And that's just in North America, not even mentioning globally. So now you have some articles that are coming out. Why Combinator's Demo Day for Venture Capitalists Loses Luster. Uh, why Combinator's Demo Day was once a, this is from Axios, a marquee event for VCs who gathered in Silicon Valley twice a year to network. But interest has waned as Demo Day moved online and the number of participating companies ballooned to nearly 400. A couple things there. There's the ballooning to 400, which is a big deal. Very hard to just track that, make sense of it. And then there's this moving online bit, which is also a very critical, crucial element of a demo day. The demo day is when the startups get up, they've got a few minutes on stage, it's their time to shine, to give their pitch to investors. And then after you pitch, you know, there's the fabled handshake agreement at YC. So if you're a VC and you go and you talk to the founder, and by the way, the VCs that are in the YC network have, have access to the startups before demo day. So there's Deals that happen before demo day. So there's interaction that happened before demo day. It's not the first time that these VCs are seeing or hearing about these startups at demo day. 
but it's certainly, you know, a very, you know, this is the pinnacle moment of the YC experience, uh, D-Day as they call it. And so if a VC comes up to you after your demo and shakes hands with you and says, yes, we're agreeing on terms. If a VC were to renege, right, because it's a handshake agreement, maybe there's some kerfuffling around certain terms. If a VC reneged after shaking hands at YC, that VC would be banned from attending any and all future YC events. Very big no-no. So that, you know, there's, there's a lot of pomp and a lot of kind of folklore and tales around um, that in-person demo day event and what's the right protocol um, and just, you know, how, how to manage that, right? You know, you run the math, uh, 7% for now, $125,000. These are low seven-figure valuation, right, companies. After three months, though, these startups were being valued at the low eight figures, right? So you'd be seeing like $12 million pre-money rounds. This was pre-COVID, by the way, and all the uh, tech startup asset price inflation that we've talked about on the show, right? So there's some quotes of investors. I'm actually surprised that um, some of these people went on the record. And uh, after the pandemic forced YC to abruptly conduct its March 2020 demo day, that's for the winter class, via Zoom, the entire accelerator program went virtual. So this is now uh, summer of 2020, winter of 21, and now summer of 21. You've had three batches now go entirely virtual. And now you've seen these numbers really explode. And so is this a fundamental shift? These past 18 months or so, these three bet, is this a fundamental shift for how YC conducts itself? It certainly seems so. That quote from Siebel about wanting to be more like a state university system, this article was actually from August of 2020. So this was his stated aspiration, you know, from over a year ago at this point. As YC grows its classes larger and larger, you lose some of the connection and community piece that I loved about Techstars, said Max Greenwald, a co-founder. Techstars is, there's YC, and then there's Techstars. Okay, don't even try to compare the two. Here's, here's Siebel's statement. Siebel's take is that founders do their formative relationship building after they finish the program. So it's really too soon for graduates to tell. In the middle of the batch, everyone has their heads down. They're not hanging out with each other and grabbing drinks, he said. The community building happens after the batch. I think it's very hard to make an absolute statement like that. And I know from personal experience, people that work at Applico and talk about their YC experience, it's just not true. You are working all the time, but you're working in very close quarters with other people. And I think even if you're not spending a lot of time grabbing drinks and hanging out because you're grinding, it's hard to explain just that emotional connection of knowing that, hey, I was grinding. That person over there was grinding. We were grinding. Like we didn't talk and hang out and drink together. But that does build rapport. That does build a sense of community which cannot be replaced by a virtual program that now has hundreds of startups. It is, it is not the same. The community building happens after the batch, I think is a very big statement. And I think an incorrect statement doesn't mean that it's not true that community building does happen after the batch, 
But you can't just write off the community building, the relationship building that happens during the grind. Now, I would actually argue that a lot of founders you know, would probably look back on those as the most formative days. He talks about formative relationship building. The most formative days, right? Those most nostalgic days. Hey, we were grinding. We were there till 3 a.m. Yeah, we weren't talking, but we were just grinding. Man, those were the great days. That's when you're having a beer, reminiscing a year, two, three down the road, where one, one person's company is now worth a billion dollars and the other one's company failed. But you were both there in the room grinding it out. That to me, those are really the special moments. Um, sure, you can hang out, but you're just not going to have the same level of intimacy when you've now got hundreds of startups and you were all virtual. I, I think it's a miss. I really do. If you want to do both, you could do both, by the way. It's not mutually exclusive. You could have an in-person program. If you really wanted to do in-person um, accelerator, you could do it. You could do it. Uh, maybe you couldn't do it in San Francisco, but you could always move and go somewhere else. You could do in-person accelerator right now, Michael Siebel, if you really wanted to. And you could also do virtual, by the way, for startups that didn't want to do in-person, then they could do virtual. And maybe that's where you have a larger group of you know, participants, virtual. Or maybe you have different tiers. I don't know. But ultimately, the proof will be in the pudding. We kind of got to wait a few years to see what happens. It's much easier to cast a, a wider net and then point at five or 10 examples, right? When I'm showing you those companies, the Airbnb, the DoorDash, the Twitch, you got to understand the sample size, the number of startups going through the program. Reddit, first batch ever, right? Eight companies was so small that to have that trajectory of success rate at the seed stage, it's, it's, it's unprecedented. It's insane, actually. Um, insanely impressive. I would have a lot of consternation with this new direction. And just these statements, I don't think our goal should be to build another ivory tower. Like, where does that come from? I think it's completely unfounded. Uh, really disappointing to see. To counterbalance it, got an article here from December of 2020 saying, running the numbers on Y Combinator's best year yet. Now, this is really looking at the results, not the, not the new batches, right? So this article is looking at all the, the IPOs, the M&A, and the returns, right? So there's a lot of activity in 2020. 301 acquisitions of Y Combinator companies. It's awesome. The number of exits we recorded above $100 million totals 17 companies overall to date, with two at a billion dollars or above. It's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal what they've been able to do. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in follow-on rounds of YC companies. Y Combinator has 29 more portfolio companies valued at over a billion dollars, with a further 11 emerging unicorns. Can't beat it. Uh, but a, a different recipe. They may, I mean, they may still have the same quantity of hits, but they're doling out way more money and making way more bets. If I am the mentor, if I am YC, being able to do the coaching and the mentorship in person and getting a feel for how the founders react to feedback and adversity, 
it's very hard to replace that virtually. I'm sure they're going to say they got a recipe and it's working fine, but oof, man, I do wish them the best. I just think it's very difficult to make this such a binary decision. We're going all virtual. At the very least, you could do both. It doesn't have to be this aggressive. Why? Right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. What's broken? Don't think it's broken. Next topic. Whole Foods Market launching Amazon's Just Walk Out technology. Jeez, finally. Whole Foods has been like the neglected black swan in this, uh, in this family. Amazon's trying to do Amazon Fresh. You know, they're trying to do their own grocery stores. They like leave Whole Foods out to dry. Now they're finally rolling out the Just Walk Out tech at two Whole Foods Market stores, one in D.C. and one in California. Expected to open within the next year. The stores will offer uh, just walk out cashierless checkout lanes and self checkout lanes, but not traditional checkout lanes. Shoppers who want to check out with the Whole Foods Market team member will need to check out with the customer service. I really do love this model. There are a number of tech startups that have raised now um, high eight figures money and some low nine figures money doing similar things. But I do, I really do love the thesis around eliminate, eliminating the checkout lane and changing the shopping in-person shopping experience more than just the cool factor. Two big reasons why I think this fundamentally changes the economics of grocery and retail shopping. In grocery, you have, I think, about 3% lossage historically. That means, uh, you know, you take something out of the refrigerated section yogurt, you change your mind, you put it on the shelf, it goes bad, you got to throw it out. Theft, that's also included in that number. So grocery and food in general, such a low margin business to begin with, 3% lossage, very big deal. If you can even slash that by a third, right, bring it down to like 2%, it's a game changer for your margins. So when you take something off the shelf, the thing is tracking you. And if you don't put it back where you got it, the thing charges you, right? So it's actually bringing more accountability to the consumer shopping behavior. You take something off the shelf. If you don't like it, fine. You got to put it back. Um, and otherwise that's on you. Also, there's overhead from just staff needing to go and put restock things because you didn't want it, right? There's just a lot of that additional overhead to keep the store organized and operating properly. So you, that's a big deal. In other industries where this tech could eventually be rolled out to, let's say like, uh, you know, more general retail clothing shopping, clothing uh, stores have insane amount of theft as an issue. With the cameras, with the tech, you're going to start hacking down on that concept of lossage of stuff going bad or theft. The other economic game changer here is just the square footage, right? Around 15% of the square footage in these stores is dedicated towards checkout lanes. Now you don't need a checkout lane. The thing is automatically checking you out as you shop. You can reduce the footprint, right? Use that square footage elsewhere. 15% is a lot of square footage. Um, and your staff, right? You don't need as much cashier's staff um, to, 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 to man the aisles. That's already been cut down by a lot of you've seen self-checkout technology. But now you basically get a combination of some staff reduction and um, just overall less footprint because now you actually don't even need to go through the checkout process. 
Not to mention, it's just a delightful shopping experience when it works. As the tech gets refined and improved, it, you know, I, I think that will become less and less of an issue. So I really like this model. Weird to me why Amazon has just kind of slow played everything with Whole Foods. I think you're going to see this stuff happen more and more. It's a big investment. It's expensive. Um, and I think that some of these tech startups have really compelling technology, but the economics are lacking. You know, really what those tech startups need is they need to uh, get into the payment flow, which is really the big unlock here. There's a lot of money to be made when you uh, disintermediate kind of the point of sale. And so how do the big credit card companies, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, really take a slug with one of these kind of just walk out competitors and start to change the economic model, right? The, for example, the store has to, if, if, if the chain has to foot the cost of installing all this technology, it's a big lift for uh, a retail store to shoulder. If the just walk out startups can start to monetize by getting a bigger and bigger chunk of the payment flow, then they can subsidize more and more of the upfront costs to install the tech, right? And reduce the burden on the retail chain that is now having to, you know, take a lot of that capex. So there's more on the business model of how these competitors get going to rival, you know, what Amazon is doing. But I think there is a big opportunity there. Okay. Last topic. Goldman buying GreenSky for $2.24 billion in an all-stock deal. So what is GreenSky? GreenSky, it's kind of like buy now, pay later, but eh, yeah, I don't know. Everyone loves this buy now, pay later term because of the square afterpay deal and a firm. And now B BNPL is everywhere. It's kind of that, but not really. They made their mark in the construction industry. So giving contractors, building distributors, building you know contractors, a, a payment mechanism that they can give to the consumer, the homeowner to give them credit, right? Hey, if I'm a contractor. I want to do this house uh, project. If I can give you better credit, then I get to do more jobs, right? So it's a win-win. And that's, that's been their bread and butter. They've expanded into, into healthcare. Like here's a little brochure. You know, this is uh, one of these building contractors kind of case study Lansing building products. Contractors report up to a 50% increase in sales with financing offers from the Green Sky loan program. This is an older brochure. It's not BNPL because BNPL is all in vogue these days. But, you know, you're providing a loan, deferred interest plans, credit limits up to $65,000, high approval rates. Green Sky ultimately has a network of a handful of banks that are providing the actual debt, and Green Sky is the intermediary. It's a very small, finite number of banks, like a handful of them. And Green Sky's actually run into some issues, which is why when we look at their stock price, it doesn't look so hot. IPO'd 2018, hit 26 bucks, and never got back there ever again. Pre-COVID, they're at like nine bucks a share. Pre-COVID. Then, you know, COVID hit, there's sub $5. There's sub 
end of 2020, right? We spent trillions and trillions of dollars. Home improvement was going crazy. That was all hitting end of 2020. There's still sub $5 a share. Big rally, right? Beginning of 2021, they go to seven and then Goldman acquires them for, you know, like 11 and change. So weird, right? Roughly $2.2 billion deal. And you look at their volumes, their volumes are not that far off from a firm. What's a firm valued at? $29 billion, so more than 10x. So let's compare these. A firm doing for the quarter, $261 million in revenue. They're actually losing money also. So they're doing $261 million in revenue. Green Sky did... 136 million in revenue, 261 to 136. So it's almost half, but 2 billion versus 29 billion. 2 billion, 29 billion, half the revenue. What gives? You look at the GMV, same kind of story. We're we're not talking a, a firm doing over 10x the volume than a green sky. So the volumes of a green sky. The revenue of a green sky, what, half of a firm? But a firm is 14, 15 times the value, 14 times the value of green sky? How does that make any sense? Well, as we've seen with all of these tech companies, and yes, these are fintech companies, uh, it's all about growth. And that is the big Achilles heel of green sky. The growth is just not there. That's really been their big issue. So this is an old article, December of 2020, historical transaction volumes, right? It's actually decreasing, not not decreasing pre-COVID. Yes, it decreased and then started to increase, uh, you know, again, home improvements are by far their biggest vertical. So 1.6 billion and change in Q3 2019 goes down to less than 1.5 in Q4, goes down okay in Q1, but you know, some of that was um, COVID-related, so you know, hard to, to hold them to that one. But it was already declining pre-COVID, and that very much so coincides with the decline in the stock price, right? These are valued like tech companies because they're financial tech companies. You need the growth. So when Green Sky is reporting, yeah, we did... Uh, um, 136 million in revenue, second quarter transaction volume grew by 14% year over year. Those aren't big numbers, right? Those, you want to know what a firm's revenue growth number was? 71%, right? 14%, 71%. That is what all of these tech companies are valued on is the growth. You got a firm doing deals here, Home Advisor, owned by Angie's List which is a home services marketplace. So Home Advisor partners with a firm. This is December 2020. So a firm is coming into the home improvement and construction space. You betcha. Square and Afterpay are going to be absolutely. And that's the real gotcha in all of this. They're buying a, a business that has scale, but is struggling to grow. And if Goldman can make this thing grow, then yeah, the deal is a no-brainer. Before I get to that, 
Is the timing a little peculiar? Square announced they're buying Afterpay August 1st. Now, it's Goldman. Goldman knows this stuff before it gets announced. Um, so I think this deal happened because Square bought Afterpay and because they got some FOMO and because they said, we need to buy now, pay later, play. Goldman, I'd say maybe they were even involved. You know, any kind of deal this size after pay, Goldman would probably be involved in that, right? You know, the banker is going to try and drum up the most uh, interest and, and, and jack up the price. The board has a fiduciary duty at Afterpay to make sure they got the highest price for the company, right? So it's not like Square is the only one that knows this deal is going down. Goldman probably had an option to buy it at the very least. If they didn't, they definitely knew about it through the grapevine because it's Goldman Sachs. And I think then they set their people into motion to go and do their own BNPL play. That led them to Green Sky. Much cheaper, similar type of technology, strong foothold in construction, which is big and the money just keeps flowing. So there's going to be more activity there. But, you know, has Goldman really been able to be successful with Marcus? And uh, the verdict is still out. I'm a little skeptical, to be frank. What is Marcus? Goldman Sachs bought GE's, GE Capital's online business um, back in 2015 and turned it into Marcus, right? So you could now have, as a, as a consumer um, that didn't have millions and millions of dollars to, to invest with Goldman, um, now you could just have a savings account. And if you remember, a few years ago, Marcus was doing insane, insane interest rates, like 2.15%. Maybe it was even up to 2.5% at times, right? 2.5% just to put your money there. It's just insane. And then it dropped and then it dropped. And now it's basically nothing because the Fed interest rate is 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 also basically nothing. Yeah, they got more and more savings, but they were paying for it, bleeding money to go get all these deposits into Marcus. They've done deals with, with Amazon to, to lend to Amazon's uh, merchants. They've done, uh, they, they paid whew, out the you know what to do the deal with the Apple card. They have all these really smart tech strategy people, you know, that are supposed to know what to do. And Goldman has to be the smartest person in the room. And man, are they paying for it? But is it working? Mm, I don't really know. If it was working, would the leaders of the division leave? Two top leaders from its Marcus consumer unit defecting to a new Walmart venture mere weeks after they were elevated into the top uh, roles. Omar Ismail, who ran the business, and one of his top deputies, David Stark, have been poached to run the retail giant's fledgling fintech startup. Set back to Goldman's nascent push into Main Street. His exit comes just months after Greg Lemkow, Lemkow Goldman's well-liked investment bank boss, startled insiders by joining Michael Dell's investment firm. Lots of exodus. Uh, they got a, now this new guy, Harit Talwar, spending a lot of money. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that Goldman could have gone after. It might have been a little less aggressive. It might have been um, a little less grandiose, but it would be winning 
and growing and probably making money. So let me give you one recent example rather than, you know, saying, yeah, in hindsight, you know, your vision is 2020. Let me give you one recent example. Instead of going after the hot, shiny object, which is buy now, pay later, green sky, what is Goldman really going to do to make this thing magically grow again that this company hadn't already been trying to do? Like, what is Goldman... Yeah, they can bring more capital. And yes, Green Sky did have one of their banks leave, uh, which is kind of an issue. But maybe they can help them expand into new verticals. Green Sky was trying to expand into healthcare, for example, pre-COVID. But yeah, maybe Goldman can just dump more money into the thing. But is that really going to work? As opposed to saying, what's the next thing on the horizon? I'll give you an example. This company, I love this company. Um, there's other ones like this, but this is the leader. This is Resolve Pay. Guess where they came out of these founders? Oh, oh, a firm called A Firm. They have raised a little under $100 million in equity capital. This is called a trade finance business. Uh, grow faster with modern B2B payments and net terms. Resolve allows B2B manufacturers and wholesalers to get paid upfront, while their business customers can pay in 30, 60, or 90 days. For a complete net terms and credit management solution. Our top number one B2B marketplace in our top 50 ranking is a company called FAIR. I interviewed uh, one of the co-founders of FAIR and we talked about the business. You can go read that interview. And they're a multi-billion dollar company. They're doing multi-billion dollars in GMV. Interesting. Another one of the top three uh, B2B marketplaces was a company called Jure. Jure is doing also billions of dollars in GMV, but is a sub-billion dollar valuation company. What is the difference? And why was FAIR number one and not Jure? Even though Jure might have more GMV than FAIR. The answer is simple. FAIR has a take rate. They're taking about 20%, right? For every dollar that is paid through the platform, they get 20 cents on the dollar. That's a nice, meaty revenue model. The only way that a platform can command and still retain such a high take rate is if you're really providing meaningful value to both sides of the platform when you're at that scale, especially, right? And you don't get crammed down. That is why FAIR was our number one. Jure has more of a SaaS model, fee model. They're not, they don't have that take rate model. The key mechanism as to why FAIR is able to get a take rate is because they're providing what? Net 60 payment terms. So FAIR lets any small retailer go and procure all the stuff that you would want to sell in your store. FAIR has a whole wide catalog. Jure is more focused on clothing. FAIR does clothing, but they also do like home goods and appliances and, um, you know, a bunch of different uh, types of products. But the key thing is that on FAIR, you're a small retailer. You can buy your stuff. You can start selling it. You can return it all. Within 59 days, let's say you bought a bunch of stuff and it wasn't selling as, you, as fast as you thought it was going to sell. You have now not paid a dime in cash flow for these goods. Even though you can start selling them, you can test the market to see how well the stuff is selling and then you can return excess flows. No questions asked. Big deal. For a small retailer, 
Fair is giving the buying power and the the purchasing leverage that a Macy's would typically command with merchants, right? Macy's can overbuy and then just ship it back to the seller and say, hey, you got to refund us for this stuff. It didn't sell like we thought or whatever, right? Macy's gets crazy payment terms. Fair is giving that same kind of uh, power and value prop to its small business customer retailers. And its producers are signing up for this, right? Its suppliers. That's a key part, this um, net terms B2B payments uh, model. And this resolve pay, Fair's doing it on their own balance sheet, by the way. They're doing this themselves. But I love this company, right? To me, is this thing big? Is it going to be a big splash? Is it Goldman doing a deal with Apple? Um, is it Goldman doing a deal with Amazon? No. But it, it's Goldman buying Resolve Pay for like a few hundred million dollars. It's not a big splash. It's not a multi-billion dollar deal. It's, but you want to know what? In those big multi-billion dollar deals, Goldman, yeah, you're big, but you don't have much leverage with an Apple or an Amazon. Sorry to break it to you, buddy. And now you just spent billions of dollars again on something that is struggling to grow. You haven't really been able, you've been able to go after the big high-flying deals and catch a lot of press, but you're burning money. You're like lighting money on fire. And um, it catches the headlines. I just don't know if it's the best business strategy. Uh, So we'll see. See where the, the verdict lands. I do wish that Goldman is successful because I, I am a fan for the incumbents and traditional businesses. I'm just not sure it's necessarily the best tact and path for them to go down. But this company, this company is going to crush it. They already are crushing it, but they're just going to continue to crush it. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. I will talk to you later.